speak to you in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So early in my ministry, one of my teachers told me that the Bible, that the Bible is really just a story of sibling rivalry. Uh, you can see that from the very first pages. Uh, Cain and Abel get in a scuffle. Can you imagine this? They get in a fight about worship, a church fight before the church even existed. It ends with murder, which puts current church fights in perspective. Um, but as generations roll on, we read about Jacob versus Esau, Joseph versus murderous brothers, David's sons at each other's throats. It continues in the New Testament. Jesus tells us about the prodigal son and his priggish older brother. A few weeks ago, we heard about Mary and Martha, a story surfacing tension between contemplative and active lives. Today, Jesus is drawn into a family dispute about inheritance of all things. Now, in other, as in other family disputes then and now, people try to triangulate. They try to triangulate Jesus, which is a trap he will not fall into. To this day, estate lawyers and family therapists and clergy are often put in that spot. But um, Jesus, the great teacher, resorts to the help of a parable, a story that serves as a warning to those siblings who thought that the most important thing was money. Jesus invites them to look inward and think about treasure, about what they really value and what they want to value, about what's worth this dispute, about where their heart is. I found myself wondering this morning if whoever it is who won the lottery in the suburb of Chicago could be hearing this lesson, it might be helpful. <laughs> Jesus makes this point uh, elsewhere, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says to those with ears to hear, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Boom. That's a passage we hear on Ash Wednesday, actually. And it's a really good way to kick off a season of self-examination, a season to think about where our heart is, to think about what we love. And whenever I hear that teaching from Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, I recall the related words of a desert father. He said, do not give your heart to that which does not satisfy your heart. And I think, my gosh, I do that on a daily basis. So how do we think this morning about where we are giving our hearts? How do we look at what it is we treasure? And while we're at it, what does Jesus mean when he speaks about being rich toward God at the end of this passage? On one level, I think it's kind of simple. If I want to find out where I'm giving my heart, a quick glance at my calendar and credit card statement will tell me a whole lot. Those two documents witness to what I value. And these questions go all the way back to the first churches in the Christian movement. Today's reading from the letter to the Colossians talks about where early Christians set their affections, where they give their heart, what they treasure. And I read into that between the lines that those first Christians, just like us, were contending with competing affections. The passage that we heard, that Gilbert read for us, is often read on Easter as it talks about how we enter 
into the new life that Easter promises. Hearing it today, midsummer, its message is a reminder that in the church we say every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. We sometimes say that every Sunday is a little Easter. And among other things, Easter suggests change and transformation and new possibilities and new life, reoriented affections. So let me do a little sidebar here and tell you about one of my hobbies, which began many years ago. I, I like to collect photos of church signs. I know I'm not alone in this. Uh, and if you see any memorable ones in, in your summer travels, send them my way, okay? The hobby began when I saw this photo uh, of a sign in front of a country church, one of those signs on a trailer it had movable letters like we used to see on movie marquees. And the sign parked in front of this little church bore this Easter message. The Lord is risen, no bingo. I love that sign. It's simple, but it carries, it carries this, I remember, because it carries this big message for me. It says that the news of Easter, news at the heart of our faith, brings about change, reschedules our life, reorients our, our life, brings about a new way of life. And that new, transformed, changed way of life has everything to do with where we decide to set our affections. So with that in mind, how would you respond if someone asked where your affections have been set? The letter to the Colossians invite, invites us to set our affections. Translation today was set our minds. Another is set our affections on things above to keep our eyes on that heavenly prize. With that point of view, with that way of looking at life, our current life can be changed and as those first disciples demonstrated with that point of view, that Easter point of view, the world can be changed. It's not pie in the sky. It's not withdrawal from this world. As C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. So what might it look for, for you and me to live into this new life, to be rich toward God? I'm just kicking that phrase around in my mind. Today's reading from the letter to the Colossians suggests it's like putting on new clothes, which is something folks did in the first days of the church when they were baptized. A lot of the baptisms, most of them at this time, happened on Easter Eve, mostly by, with adults, and they were baptized, and it began with them stripping off all of their clothes, buck naked, right? They were baptized in a big old pool, um, not the lovely, tasteful little bowl we have here, but a big, sw big swimming pool. Uh, they, uh, it and that, to me, was a great, a great visual of what baptism means, dying, dying to the old way, coming up somehow new. And as they were brought up from the waters of baptism, it's a really beautiful part, um, they emerged as new persons, starting a new way of life. And to signify that new start, members of the community would come around them and dress them in white clothes and white robes. They put on Christ. What does that look like? So this past week, I had a small example of this. It involves my daughter, and if you tell her I told a story on her in a sermon, I'll have to deny it. Um, 
But, but we picked her up at the airport um, earlier this week, and she was wearing a green baseball cap. And on the front of the cap were the words, be kind, be kind. And I asked her about it. She said that when she heads to the airport, she puts on that cap to remind her how she is called to behave in that setting where uh, you may have noticed anxiety can be high and tempers short. Uh, it helps her think about how she will treat people at the counter who tell her that the flight is delayed because there's a light bulb out in the bathroom on the plane, or the fellow passenger who eats a smelly tuna fish sandwich right next to her, or the TSA person who throws out her yogurt because it might be an explosive, or the person who cuts in line when their group has not even been called. That baseball cap is an outward and visible sign of intentionality, a commitment to walk in the way of love, which is the way of Jesus, not just on Sunday, but in all of life and even in air travel. It was an invitation for not only my daughter, but those around her to find a new way of relating in that anxious environment. It's about way more than just being a nice person, which is what some people think religion is all about. It is about knowing grace and showing grace in a grace-starved world, showing grace in big moments, and in smallest interactions. To me, what it means to be rich toward God is to live that new way of relating, not just on Sundays, but in all of life. The late Vernon Dozier, a wonderful lay leader and theologian, said it this way, what happens on Sunday morning is not half so important as what happens on Monday morning. In fact, what happens on Sunday morning is judged by what happens on Monday morning. It's all, again, part of what I think it means to be rich toward God. As you see in today's reading, that leaves little room for the kind of sibling rivalry that has plagued humanity, oh, since the fall. It's a call to recognize that there is rich community to be had in Christ, for as the letter says, in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. The church has struggled to live into that radical vision. We haven't always done such a good job. We see some of that sibling rivalry unfolding now at the Lambeth Conference where all the bishops from all over the place are gathered. Um, Archbishop Welby yesterday morning said, we are a messy family, but families live in mess. Fact is, we see that dynamic unfolding all around us in divided communities, in a divided nation, in a war-torn world. It unfolds in our churches, it unfolds, unfolds in our homes. So what do we do? I think we begin to find an answer as we think about where we give our hearts. Might we give our affection to the possibility of beloved community breaking in? To the possibility of the kingdom of God coming close, showing up in new ways on the Upper East Side to the possibility of the way of love, to the possibility of human family, where even if we drive each other nuts, 
we still find a way to love each other because God loves us. The answer Jesus offers to this sibling rivalry, be rich toward God. Live, live into the richness of his amazing grace. Set your heart on that lavish gift and then pass that richness on. Amen.